Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. It is April 24th. I'm Braden Dennis, joined by Simon Belanger. How we doing, Simon? We got, I think we got a pretty fun episode, in my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, it's a mix between uh, news and, uh, you know, some fun discussions that we'll have. So it should be a fun episode. Um, all right. Give us the lowdown. What's happening? CNCP rail. Uh, what is going on? The KC Southern bid. This this was out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure a lot of people expected this. I'm sure uh, Canadian National was working on this probably since uh, the CP bid was announced. Um, so basically, there's a new uh, Canadian National bid to purchase Kansas City Southern. It is higher than the CP bid. Um, it's been interesting to watch the uh, business news because there's been some jabs uh, between the CP and uh, between CP and Canadian National following that offer. Uh, CP sent a letter to U.S. regulators saying that the CNR purchase uh, would be anti-competitive. CNI, CNR shot back and at CP's claim by sending a letter to those same regulators basically saying that I would be more competitive in terms of options versus trucking and uh, you have access to the map so the the network for CN is actually quite extensive already Um, if you add up uh, Kansas City Southern to that they would have a a really wide network so east to west Canada all the way to the Gulf Coast uh, in the US and then also a, a bigger western exposure in the US all the way to Mexico Whereas if you have CP, CP only has mainly a railway that goes from east to west Canada, a little bit in the U.S., but not much. Um, So I actually, I'm not sure, honestly, if this CN bid will be uh, accepted by regulators because I'm kind of buying what CP is saying over here, and I am a CNR shareholder. Um, The U.S. has had a history of blocking these kind of deals if they perceive them as anti-competitive. And just looking at the map... It's hard to argue um, that this would create a more competitive environment because it was definitely consolidate uh, the geography in terms of the access for, for shipping and freight uh, for CNR compared to CP. Um, so I don't know what you think. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? I don't know if I have any real uh, hot takes other than it would be pretty massive, this network for both businesses, but especially for CN. I mean, given their reach already, if you were to add on the KC Southern network, CN just becomes an absolute behemoth. And so I guess they're willing to pay more uh, for it. They have a better balance sheet and more cash. So, I mean, if they if they want to go and do that, I have no real insights onto the regulatory landscape in in rail. So I'm just waiting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, I mean, it sounds like Kansas City Southern is really considering this CN offer for its shareholders, which I obviously do not blame them because that's more generous. Uh, But it will all come down to the regulatory approval, in my opinion. Yes, sir. All right, moving on. Uh, Stocks sold off, I want to say Thursday. I think it was Thursday. When Biden's tax plan 
chooses to uh, increase capital gains tax, especially on high net worth, high earner individuals. It would go up to 43.4% if you make more than $445,000 a year, Um, which leads me to, I don't know if we ever, I think we slightly touched on it, but back in January, there's this proposal to include more on the capital gains tax for Canadians from 75%. Uh, to 75% from 50%. This this was coming back, out back in January. And I don't know if we ever really fully discussed it. So it would mean that your inclusion on capital gains tax goes from 50 to 75% of your gains for Canadians, which also kind of sucks. So it looks like uh, both countries are looking to raise taxes and via capital gains is where they're going. And... Um, yeah, I'm, we're seeing that shake out in both countries right now, or at least proposed anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were texting yesterday and you were asking me about Bitcoin and why the uh, the big drop. And uh, from what I've read, one of the, the big issues is um, people were selling off because of that proposed um, increase in the U.S. Uh, capital tax gains. And then you add that with people being over levered. So it kind of compounded the correction. Um, so if some people are wondering, that's for the most part what happened with uh, the 20% uh, drop in price. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you own crypto, you gotta be, you gotta be stomaching those drops. I was just curious about what did I like miss something? And I, I mean, that goes back to, I probably need to do some more work on, on Bitcoin and I have been doing some more work on it and I've been slowly gaining a position because I think it's kind of goofy not to, even though I'm still nowhere near as knowledgeable or as, uh, convinced about it as you but i mean hey i'm i'm, I'm coming along i'm coming along exactly <laughs> uh speaking hey, of crypto you know, yeah mm-hmm. uh yeah, yeah so ahead. speaking of yeah speaking of crypto um i've had a lot of people reaching out to me asking about ethereum um and you know if they should be investing in ethereum more than bitcoin um so it's not it's not, in my opinion, one or the other. So there are two very different things. Um, so just to give a brief overview, and obviously if we have listeners that understand Ethereum well, they'll know that this is a very brief overview. So there's lots to learn. Um, and maybe later on in episodes, we'll have a uh, maybe someone, a guest that can go into more detail about uh, decentralized finance and also uh, some of the um, the NFTs, for example, because most of them are based off of the Ethereum network. So what is it? It's uh, fully decentralized. It's based on a consensus basis, uh, just like uh, Bitcoin from that perspective. Um, It was created by Vitalik Buterin. He's a Canadian-Russian programmer, so there is uh, some Canadian aspect to that. Um, Ether is actually the currency. So a lot of people interchange Ether and Ethereum. So Ethereum is actually the network. And the uh, fuel, so the coins or the price that you see is called Ether that's used on the network. Um, there's not a fixed supply for uh, Ethereum or Ether. It does increase over time. There's a fixed schedule of issuance. So for each block that's completed by the um, the blockchain, there's two new coins that go into circulation. So there's not a hard cap like Bitcoin. Uh, but if you look at the supply increase, it's very reasonable. It's a steady trajectory. It's not necessarily like we've seen uh, sometimes our governments do with uh, fiat, for example. Um, it's a programmable blockchain where developers can create decentralized application. And that's really powerful. And I think 
it's going to be really interesting personally uh, that aspect to see it progress over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And the goal for the Ethereum network is to truly decentralize the internet because a lot of companies that we invest in and a lot of ways that the internet is created, there's a central place where the transactions are done. So for example of this is uh, there could be eventually a program that's created a decentralized program where Uber drivers currently deal directly with the customer. So that decentralized application, the code would basically be the intermediate between the driver and the actual customer. So there would no longer be a requirement for having the middleman Uber who kind of is the uh, centralized party in this situation. So there would be a removal of the third party. And that's what the, that's why people, a lot of people are excited about that technology. And it's based on smart contract technology and it has some very strict rules. So it's self-executing, it's uh, very strict and it's immutable. So it cannot be changed. Um, the coding language for some of you that may be into coding, uh, it's called solidi Solidity. Um, and basically the code is based on ifs. So if you do action A, then result B happens. Um, if you've heard about DeFi, decentralized finance, uh, most of the projects out there are actually built on the Ethereum network. So that's uh, that's in a nutshell what Ethereum, Ethereum is. I still need to read more about it. It's very interesting, uh, very promising as well. But uh, that's why in terms of market cap for um, for cryptocurrency, it's uh, it's second behind Bitcoin. It's a cool story. And this Vitalik guy i'm calling him a guy now but like when he started this he was a kid um he went to private school in toronto and then he went to the university of waterloo dropped out went back home to toronto and and proposed the ethereum white paper in 2014 so he was young man like he was really young and uh in 2011 he founded like bitcoin magazine or something and so he would have been like 17. Yeah, he would have been 17 years old. Um, and then just a few years later, he founds Ethereum. And uh, he even got some uh, a grant scholarship from Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal. And so this kid's smart. Yeah, they, this kid's crazy yeah, he's smart. smart guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> he's doing nuts and, uh, things. Like, what, what was I doing at 17, man? Jesus. I was uh, probably partying. Oh, uh, I definitely <laughs> was. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, kind of to segue as well. So to get back on the uh, on the stock exchange, so there was some big news this week regarding Ethereum. So Canada, uh, the uh, security exchange in Canada, approved uh, three new ethereum etf so a bit like the bitcoin etf uh, that were approved a few months earlier and uh, it's before i talk a bit more about them it's kind of interesting how canada is really kind of jumping into that versus the u.s right there's tons of application for bitcoin etfs in the u.s that are still uh, waiting for sec approval and canada on the other hand is just approving those and has uh, for pretty much all of them there's also a usd option too um so i i found that interesting um, you want to add something before I talk about the three ETFs? Just a quick overview. No, let's uh, let's hear about some of these ETFs. 
Okay, so there's uh, three new ETFs. So um, the first one is Purpose uh, ETHH.TO. Um, there's a 1% management fee. The MER is uh, management expense ratio is capped at 1.5%. The reason they say it's capped is because they can't know what it is until the full year is done and all their expenses are, are captured, but they have said that they'll cap it at 1.5%. Um, so the second one is Evolve ETF, ETHR.TO. Uh, 0% management fee until May 31st, 2021, then 0.75% after that. They, I could not find any mention of the uh, management expense ratio, whether there's a cap on that or not. So keep that in mind for that one. Last one is the CI Galaxy Ethereum ETF, the one I would probably invest in if I were to uh, select one of these ETFs. Management fee waived until June 15, 2021 and 0.40% after that. And the management expense ratio is capped at 0.95%, which is considering the trading fees of uh, cryptocurrency right now. Um, to me, that's very reasonable. I know it may sound a bit high compared to traditional index funds, uh, but considering what's out there, uh, that's very respectable. So if I had to choose of the three, just based on the fees, I would choose the SCI Galaxy. C Ethereum ETF. Um, I don't have the ticker right in front of me, but I will add it to the show notes. That's really not expensive. I mean, when you consider the spread that you got to pay on these things on the exchange anyways, it's really not. And I see like these management fees waived, uh, really just trying to get some fun flows as these things roll out. Eh? It's pretty, pretty clever, but uh, you can see how, they- how competitive it's becoming, right? Yeah, and all three have have a BTC ETF as well. So I feel like they've learned from the BTC ETF. They know that there's U.S. competition coming uh, in the works with the SEC. So I think they're very, they're like you said, they're being proactive, trying to cut some slack to people, encourage them to join in on their ETF. So I feel like that's that's where it's coming from. So it's that definitely interesting compared to how they launched the BTC ones. All right, I'm really excited for the next segment of the show. We're going to talk about selling and selling stocks is something that I think that we haven't really done a good job of doing a deep dive into. Uh, We've talked about it, but I think this is a good opportunity for us to talk about a framework for how we think about selling and when to, when not to. And this is obviously not investment advice, just our opinion on our framework of selling holdings and how I view volatility and how it how it comes into this mix. So I'm going to start talking about volatility and you'll see why this is important for selling and some other important investing concepts that I think about all the time and, and I think are really important. So I'm a huge believer in the Terry Smith concept, which is buy good companies, don't overpay and do nothing. And the do nothing part is probably the most important and the hardest to actually do um, because buying is easy. Buying what you think is good or great is is a little bit harder but somewhat easy. Uh, but do nothing is very difficult. Um, and I try to sell as little as possible. So let's talk about a scenario of how knowing what you own and selling are tied at the hip. So again, that's knowing the business that you actually own really well and how selling are so attached. Okay, so let's say you buy a stock 
by the name of Aerotine International. It is a cutting-edge high-tech firm out of the Midwest, awaiting imminent patent approval on the next generation of radar detectors that have both huge military and civilian applications right now. It's exciting. <laughs> now, if you hear that, if you hear that pitch talk and it sounds familiar, it's the penny stock that Leonardo DiCaprio pitches in his penny stock scam in the Wolf of Wall Street movie. So that might be why you, you've heard of that one before. Now, if you got swindled into owning Aerotine International, either from it's some goofy stock promotion or your buddy told you that you need to own this cutting-edge high-tech firm out of the Midwest with huge military and civilian applications right now, and you buy this thing, now the next two, now you own it, the next two days stock loses 20% of its value. Okay, this this happens all the time. What do you do? Like, you're going to sell this thing the second you can, probably because you don't know a thing about the business. And here's where things get interesting. Say Aerotine International did have this cutting-edge high-tech firm uh, capabilities, and it is actually a great business, hypothetical. There's going to be volatility the whole way of owning this thing, especially if it's a smaller cap. Um, so you got to really know the business to be able to make that distinction or else the first second you get when the market opens, you're going to sell the thing. So let's look at some data from Monster Energy. And I'm pulling this uh, a physical book right in front of me now because it's, it's some data from 100 baggers. So this data is up to 2014, but the stock is actually up even more since then. Uh, the stock is up 75,000% since IPO, <laughs> like Monster Energy Drink, which is absolutely mental. Okay, so in 2006, Monster Energy finished up 70.96% up on the year in 2006. I'm going to read off the monthly uh, change in price from January through to, to December. 11 6.37%, 6.38%, 35%, 2.66%, 42.83%, 2.99%. Okay, so the first half of 2006, this thing has done nothing but go up. Like it finished Q1 up 60% and Q2 up 51%. So now you're like, okay, this is when this stock pitch comes in. You're like, your buddy's like, look, I'm already up over 100% on this thing. You buy it in July, okay, of 2006, Monster Energy. Could be a great company, but you don't know. It starts July. It's down 3.36%. In August, Simon, Monster Energy stock lost 40.13% of its value. Now, you'd be like, what the hell, man? What did? Why do? What is this? Right? Like terrible. Now in September the stock is up eighteen percent. It falls a little bit in, in October again. It's down eleven point four six percent in November, and then finishes two thousand six in December up nineteen point seven seven percent. Absolute roller coaster. Finishes the year up almost seventy one percent. Now, if you didn't know Monster Energy Drink, and you're just going for this high flyer 
and you bought after a great stellar first year of 2006 and then pr- it proceeded to lose more than 40% of its value in two months, you wouldn't know what to do. So you got you to gotta really know the business because you'd probably sell the thing and then miss out on you know a couple of hundred beggars. So looping that all together on real reasons to sell, assuming you actually have done your due diligence, you ideally should be selling never. Uh, if the great if it's a great business and confirm the thesis over and over again, but uh, this is easier said than done. Sometimes you might need to move on from the business. So I have five reasons I've written here on why I sell, and I think it's a decent framework. So number one, you were wrong, just straight up. Your thesis and research was was short sighted. Uh, you didn't see. You underestimated competition. Uh, you just didn't see something in your thesis your main thesis was was wrong and it's played out wrong uh number two you've grown as an investor and realized that that business is really not that great uh number three you've gotten your multiple expansion and don't feel to feel the need to own it at higher multiples i've done this i mean i am not a deep value flip and get out type of investor but sometimes i've bought in stuff that's way too cheap uh at like eight times earnings, it goes to 18 times earnings. And I'm like, okay, I I think it's quite fairly valued for a mediocre business at 18. So I'm out. Uh, Number four, you have, you need capital for a better idea. Now this one, be careful with, because you can always make more money in life. You can always save more. You can always get the savings rate down to invest more money. It's the same concept of last episode we talked about. You don't necessarily always need leverage. So be careful with this one. I mean, don't don't be in and out of names for no reason uh, just to add to something else. And then number five, you need capital for your life. This is the importance of the emergency fund because if you do not have to sell great businesses unnecessarily, you're not unnecessarily breaking compounding, that's why the emergency fund is so important. But hey, sometimes you just need money for your life. Things happen, things come up, and that could be a pretty decent reason to sell stocks. Uh, number six that I, you know, we'll, we'll say asterisk number six, which Simon's going to talk about, which is uh, peeling off the, the principle for retirement withdrawals. So uh, do you want to get into that? Yeah, yeah. And those are great. They're probably the, the five rules I, I, live by as well for selling and like you said sometimes you know stuff happens and you have to to sell even if you have a pretty healthy emergency fund um but yeah so it, when it comes to decumulation for retirement um there is a you a lot of people may have heard the four percent rule for w- retirement withdrawals so i'll give an overview of what it is some of its limitations as well um so it's based on a 1994 study by william Bengen, B-N-G-N, so I'm probably butchering the name, looking at, he was looking to establish a rule for withdrawal to have sufficient funds for a 30-year period regardless of market conditions. Um, So what you want to do if you want to apply this is the first year you retire, you withdraw 4% of the total value, and then every following year you withdraw the same amount but uh, adjusted for inflation. So obviously if there's 2% inflation, then you withdraw 2% more than the initial time. Uh, The 
starting point for this should be about, uh, you should have about 25 times your desired annual retirement income to be able to do the 30 year. Uh, again, there are limitations to this. This was also done 1994. The data was taken from, if I remember correctly, the 1930s to 1960s. I may be off a little bit there, but it's not very recent data. So that is one asterisk for that study. Um, some people says, say that it's too risky. It's been criticized for uh, being too risky. Um, you can also make an argument on the other end of the spectrum saying that it is too conservative, especially if you have a life expectancy in retirement that's relatively short. Um, so obviously everyone wants to, you know, have a healthy life as long as they can, but some people may have pre-existing conditions that uh, really limits their life expectancy. For example, they could have, you know, very best case scenario, only 15 or 20 years to live. Um, you could have someone with a very... Or if you just cancer. retire really late. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that could be another example of that. So you may not need the 30 years worth of saving. Um, so those are all things that, to factor in, but it's uh, it's mentioned a lot in terms of retirement rule. Uh, the last thing that it does not take into account is a lot of people for their retirements will have that money in registered accounts, specifically RSPs. So it does not take into account the required withdrawals. So it's for sure you can still do the minimum requirement withdrawal when you have a RIF or a LIF, but um, you know you don't necessarily need to spend that money, so you could redirect that to another type of account, but it still does not take into account that. So those are, they're all limitations. Um, what I would recommend personally, if you, depending on, you know, you have to make your own assumptions when you retire, uh, you may also have other type of incomes that are, you know, not necessarily invested in the stock market or bonds. Uh, so you have to factor that in, whether it's a pension, whether it's uh, income from properties, whatever it is. So these are things to factor in. Um, look at your own situation, but that could be a good baseline uh, if you're looking to have enough funds for a, an extended period of time when you retire. Yeah, that's that's a good synopsis of that rule of thumb, 4%. I think it's pretty common, that number that gets thrown around. Again, with any rule of thumb, it's uh, it's just a guideline and you got to kind of work with uh, your own your own situation and uh, and go with what makes sense for you. Uh, see, mom, I think that's uh, that's good for today. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. As always, getstockmarket.com. Head there, and you can see uh, Stratosphere. You can talk about. You can see some of the names that I talk about in terms of knowing what you own. I do some deep dives into some businesses that you've heard on this podcast as well. Um, so, like we did GFL last week. That's a, that's a good example. And you gotta, if there's one takeaway from this, how selling and volatility and they all kind of shake out together. Would you agree that knowing what you own is the common theme to help mitigate some of these issues? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, just um, just knowing what you own, you feel a lot more comfortable if there's a big drop in price because you know the business well. Um, so you don't feel that sense of panic. And that's that would be a, a big issue if you don't know, because then you're you may panic and do a sell and be regretted down the line. Yeah, because you know that Monster Energy. I mean, that's a cherry. It's a cherry picked stat, the Monster Energy one. But 
there are many businesses out there that if you sold early, you would have missed out on life-changing wealth. And I hope I don't ever have one of those. Uh, but who knows? Maybe I will. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just I'm sure you own stocks that you look back at the charts. Like I own, uh, for example, Teladoc. I've had instances where it dropped 40% in price and I still held on. And I'm really happy I did hold on over the long run because then it exceeded the, the previous peak. But that's because I knew the business. So um, I'm sure you can think of examples, especially for like high growth businesses. Uh, you know, it's not unusual to see that 30, 40% drop. And it's uh, totally. if it's a good business. You just have to you just have to hodl. Yeah, you got to hodl. Exactly. I don't mean to drag this on too long, but the, you know what happens, right? Is some of these high growth businesses, they could be great. They could be building a moat. And the, the valuation has just gotten a bit, insane and it's gotten a little ahead of itself so those sell-offs are just natural normal corrections and when they're happening though they feel like there's something you're missing right it feels like there's something in the business that you might have missed or there's you know there's something out there so you start googling what's going on and and you realize that there's nothing other than the the valuation might a little just got ahead of itself you might see some goofy motley fool article about the company but that's <laughs> that's we'll, we'll get into that on another on another podcast um all right guys and yeah go ahead well, one last thing i wanted to, to mention before we let them go so the poll uh is done for that we did on twitter uh so if some of you are wondering what the uh, name that one is uh to my surprise i thought it would be another one it was uh blackberry so we'll be, uh, blackberry, we'll be eh? yeah yeah close to 40 percent and uh two plus more than 200 votes so that's what uh, the people seem to want so um in the next couple of weeks votes in we'll, total or 200 votes for blackberry uh, 200 votes, I think in total, maybe a bit closer to 300. I don't have it in front of me, but, um, so you guys can rest assured we'll be doing a review of it uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't, it won't be next week cause we have a planned guest, but, uh, probably the week after that. Yeah. I guess I start, should start doing some, uh, research on research in motion. Actually, they don't go by that yeah. name anymore, do they? No, no, just uh, bring out your your old uh, keyboard phone. I'm going to bring out my BlackBerry <laughs> Bold. I'm going to do the whole podcast recorded on my BlackBerry Bold from 2008. Quality won't be good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll just use the fancy keyboard. All right, guys and gals, thank you so much for listening. This is the Canadian Investor Podcast. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.